Okay, let's continue. Thank you for coming back on time. Habib Gerges was also elected three times with the greatest number of votes to the lay community council or the Maglis in Melli. But his relationship with the lay community council was not always a positive relationship, even though that he was a member of the council. There was resistance to his work, and particularly with respect to finances. So he always struggled all throughout his career about finding enough finances to be able to provide for the work of Sunday school and more and uh, even more with respect to his work at the seminary. Um, because when he took over as dean in 1918 uh, of the seminary, the seminary was in a very poor condition. He had to start looking to purchase land to uh, purchase buildings, to renovate. The buildings were in a very poor condition. There was no church. He had to build the church from scratch because it was very important to, if you have a seminary, obviously you need to have a church where you're going to train the seminarians, all the tukus, all the rites of the church, plus a place where they can practice preaching, yeah? And so he taught them how to preach. This is a very fine art. It's not anyone can just get up to preach. He taught them how to prepare proper sermons. He actually gave a very important lecture on May 6, 1904, about the importance of preaching in the Christian church in general and in the Coptic Orthodox Church in particular. I gave a lecture about this lecture exactly 100 years later, in uh, 20, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I forgot the dates now. Anyway, but uh, it was re translated, his lecture is translated into English and was published in the Coptic Church Review. Uh, a couple of years ago, Abun Athanasius Farag. So he had to build a church, he had to go preaching everywhere and then speaking to wealthy Copts to donate towards his work, went to the Maglis and Melli asking them for support. You know, once, for example, there was an Ethiopian metropolitan staying in one of the rooms. He was not in the room at the time and the ceiling of the room collapsed inside of the room. So if the Metropolitan was in there, definitely he would have died, yeah? And would have caused a big problem between our church and the Ethiopian church that, you know, we could have been accused that we killed the, the, the Metropolitan. But uh, another time the, the stairwell was collapsing and he needed funds immediately to fix it. 
you know, the rooms, the rooms of, he had blind cantors that were teaching the hymns. He built a factory for them where they could do weaving baskets so that they could sell them to find some money to find food. Their situation was dismal. The rooms, he writes in one of his letters to the vicar of the patriarchate, telling them, please send a carpenter. The windows are broken. It's winter. It was like December in Egypt. And it is extremely cold. There's not enough coverings for the cantors. And they are suffering bitterly. And sorry to say, they were also urinating on themselves because of the cold. And the patriarchate just ignored the requests over and over again. Another time, he writes, he says, the sewerage has broken in the bathrooms. And the sewerage has started to pour out into the corridors, going towards the bedrooms of the students. Right? And you can imagine the sicknesses that can develop with something like that happening. Yeah? And what could happen to the students? There was a doctor who was uh, appointed to look after the health of the students at the seminary. His name is Dr. Loria Beck. And Dr. Loria Beck writes several times to Habib Gerges, saying to him, please fix up these issues. We need a room dedicated to the six students. Some of them were collapsing in the class from some of the sickness. And Habib Gerges didn't have the funds. He would write to the patriarchate, please send people to help us to fix all of these problems. And all his requests are ignored, unfortunately. And Dr. Loria Beck then at the end could not find any solution. He writes a very stern letter to Habib Gerges saying to him, look, if you don't fix these problems, I have no other option but to write to the health department to shut down the seminary. This is how dire the situation had gotten. Imagine a dean trying to care for all of the needs of his students whom he loved so dearly, and he finds his hands are tied because the Maglis and Melli or the Patriarchate won't spend the money, even though they are spending it on many other different activities. And Habib Gerges considered the seminary to, to be the most important, where future priests are going to be ordained from, and he's getting no help. And then you'll ask me, how did you know this information? Would, would you know that sewerage was breaking in the seminary? He didn't write this in any of his books, right? How do you know that the roof, that the ceiling of one of the rooms collapsed in the room of the Metropolitan, the Ethiopian Metropolitan? Habib Gerges didn't write any of this stuff in any of his material. Do you know how I got this from? Hmm? Students? Well, students from 100 years ago? No. All of this material I found by mere chance. I got lucky as a researcher. One day I met 
uh, a scholar called Dr. Magdi Gerges, and he was doing some research in the patriarchal archives. Underneath St. Mark Cathedral in Abbasia in Cairo, there is a huge storeroom, which is the archives of the patriarchate. And he said to me, go there, maybe you'll find some documents on the work of Habib Gerges. I, I put it in the back of my mind, I didn't go immediately, and then maybe the following year I was in Cairo, so I said, let me go and see what's he talking about. So I went down, I found uh, uh, someone, employee, looking after the patriarchal archives under the cathedral, a huge room, very humid, full of dust, mice, lots of lovely stuff. I spent 10 days down there. <laughs> and I, I asked the fellow, do you have a, a catalog of what is in the archives? Thinking that I'm at Princeton University or something. <laughs> anyway, he pulls out a couple of handwritten pages. I look through it. I picked up a file called Habib Gerges. I said to him, can I have a look at it? He pulls it out, it was like three, four pages. Can you photocopy it for me? He photocopies it. I said to him, can I come down to have a look at what's in the archives? He was very surprised. For the first time, he's been there for like 30 years. The first time that a bishop is coming, wanting to look at archives. And so I went down, had a look. It's all boxes, archival boxes, numbered. And then I found thrown on the floor some books, which were the minutes of the Maglis and Melli. And Habib Gerges appointed three times, elected three times. So I said maybe some in, in the minutes about his work. So I said, okay, can I come tomorrow? I'll bring a photographer, I'll photograph the minutes. He said, okay, 10 o'clock. When I took the few pages about this file, Habib Gerges, when I looked at it, I found it's not the Habib Gerges I'm looking for. This was someone called Habib Gerges who was an employee of the Patriarchate at the time. Anyway, I came the next day, 10 o'clock. He didn't come. He came one hour late and he didn't want to even look at me. He didn't want to talk to me. He looked very upset, and I'm not getting what is going on. He said to me, look, I can't help you. No photography, you want anything, go and speak to the responsible person. I said to him, but we had an agreement. He said, no, 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 go and speak to the responsible person. So it clicked what happened, that the responsible person um, gave him a very hard time Firstly, because he photographed a, a document for me, and secondly, because he allowed me into the archives, even though that I'm a bishop in the church, okay? So I went to speak to the responsible person. I said to him, look, I'm doing a research on this, and I need to see if there's any material here on the work of Habib Gerges. He said to me, look, Sayedna, don't trouble yourself. All we have here is marriage contracts and land titles of the patriarchate. But Sunday school, seminary, Habib Gerges, there's nothing like this here. Don't trouble yourself. I said, I just want to go have a look. No, no, no. So I left, went back to Australia. 
The following year, something deep inside of me is telling me, I bet you this something here on the work of Habib Gerges, but I don't know what it is. So I said, what am I going to do? I only have one option, and that is to go straight to the top. So I went to Bishop Ioannis, secretary of Pope Shenouda. I said to him, I'm doing this work. Pope Shenouda is aware of my research. I need access to the archives. He said, OK, write a note, and I'll see what his honest says. Comes back a few minutes later, full approval, and asks Bishop Ioannis to come with me down to the archives and to tell them to give me access. What do you think happened? The doors flung open. Pepsi Cola came out. <laughs> Tea and coffee and everything you can imagine. Now anything you want. Okay. Still, I don't know what's there. <laughs> yeah, anyway. I imagine they're doing this with a bishop, what they would do to a layperson. So I brought the photographer. We started photographing the minutes of the Maglis and Melli. I had a friend of mine who's a translator sitting, look, take this fellow, tell him, ask him to give you a tour of what he knows of the archives. So he repeated the same things, land titles, marriage contracts. Then he comes to a section and says, this section is about schools. Schools? Now things are starting to be revealed. So I went there, I was photographing with the photographer, pulled out one of these boxes. Inside each box is many folders, all uh, numbered and what is inside. And every folder has tens of pages of documents. I opened the first folder, what do I find? Handwritten letters by Habib Gerges with his signature, budgets reports on Sunday school, on the seminary, letters to the patriarchate, to the synod, etc., etc., etc. Ended up photographing 7,130 pages of material of the work of Habib Gerges in the church that no one even knew existed. Photographed all this, took it back to Australia, started cataloging each of these documents that became a huge appendix to the thesis that added completely different flavor and information about exactly what was happening with Habib Gerges and his work during this time. Amazing. Yeah, so I wanted to share this with you. This was just sheer luck, that's all I can say. And. Um, there is lots of material in there that can be further studied. Maybe another PhD can come out of it. So if anyone's interested. This is a, a picture. Uh, with some of the Sunday school. Many photos like this that you will find. He was also nominated as bishop three times, and once nominated as patriarch, but I thank God that he was neither ordained as bishop or patriarch because he would have got too busy and would not have been able to do the work that he did in education. No, huh? Why is it not coming up? 
Okay, so what is the solution? So I need to take this out and yeah, back in. IT. I think if you, if you click end show, I think. Oh, okay. Okay. So we can continue. Elected three times as bishop, uh, or nominated three times as bishop and once as patriarch, but uh, because he was not from the rank of monks, so the idea was rejected. As I mentioned, he fell asleep on 21 August 1951, and the church had lost one of its most revered sons, an eloquent preacher, a visionary, an educational pioneer, a loyal servant of the Coptic Orthodox Church and a great reformer as well. He had an innate love for learning despite only completing a post-secondary diploma of theology at the seminary. And he had a belief that education would lead to reform and also to maintaining Coptic identity. And this was something very important and also very important for us today living in the United States, how do we as Copts maintain our Coptic identity in a multicultural society that we are living in and the many challenges that we meet every single day, right? You are Sunday school teachers among the children and the youth that you are teaching. You're going to meet with many challenges, you know. Just a very simple example. Someone last Sunday right, sent me a picture um, in a Barnes and Noble store. And this is what they were promoting. They were promoting four new books, and this is what the poster was saying above the books. Boy meets boy. Boys become friends, boys fall in love, right? You're going to be challenged with these things. Your kids are going to see these in bookshops. How do you respond? How do we maintain our Orthodox faith and Coptic identity in America, right? And here the situation was different, obviously, but this was also a challenge for him. We spoke about the three matters that were tearing away at Coptic identity back then. Back then, before Habib Gerges, the type of education that was taking place was called the Kutab system of learning. It was a road type of learning where blind cantors would gather groups of children either in homes or in the courtyard of a church and teach them to learn some of the Psalms, some of the Gospels off by heart, verses, 
basic arithmetic and, and, uh, and reading and so on. But that law for Kutab system ended in 1867 and it began to be integrated into the modern school system. Westerners wanted to replace the oral learning with the textbook. That's what the Westerners brought in, the textbook. And they disdained this type of education. But I would argue that there is still place for the oral and popular education within learning. We can still learn from oral uh, tradition. There was a period of radical change and turmoil. As we mentioned, the British occupation of Egypt from 1882 till 1952. There was also the demise of the Ottoman Empire that we spoke about. And also, during this time of his life, he went through World War I and World War II, and also the Great Depression. So imagine, all of these world events were also impacting Egypt. So um, Egypt was also being affected by all these things. And also the settlement of significant numbers of Europeans and Americans in Egypt back then, influencing Egypt with Western secular and religious ideas. Habib Gerges' reform vision embraced the entire Coptic community, as I mentioned briefly. He advocated free education for all people, including the poor and the illiterate, which he did not ignore. And let me talk a little bit more about rural education and what he did for this. So he says, for this is a simple matter that does not require more than our feelings toward those members in the body of Christ whom we neglected for a long time to be knocked around in their darkness, left to stumble in their ignorance, and to perish as sheep with no shepherd. These are the words of Habib Gerges speaking about those living in the villages that were ignored for such a long time. So he writes this booklet called Iftiqad al-Qarya, Visitation to the Villages. And he would, this is what he would do. Three month break in summer for Sunday school teachers who were university students and had the time on their hands during the summer. He would say to them, he would gather them together, have a meeting, and plan what they would do during the three months. First thing, go to the census office of the, of the government. Pick up the census to know where the Copts are living in the villages, because there was regular census taking place. And then he would send them into the villages on a particular route, two by two. Before you go on your mission trip, go to the central office of Sunday school. This is in one of the footnotes that I found in the booklet. Pick up the books about the life of Christ written in the Lobach method. I read this word in Arabic, Lobach. What is this? I don't know. 
Thank God for Google. I tried to write the name in English. I Googled it, and the first thing that came up, a name of a Protestant missionary in America called Frank Charles Lobach. He was sent as a missionary to the Philippines to what were known as the Moro tribes. These were illiterate people that could not read and write, and he was sent to preach to them. And when he found this problem that they were illiterate, he began to devise a system called each one teach one. Those that know how to read and write to teach those that don't. And he used the life of Christ as the method. So he was hitting two birds with one stone, teaching them how to read and write, and then preaching to them about the life of Christ. These books had come to Egypt, were translated into Arabic, and Habib Gerges was using them. The teachers would take these books with them, would enter into the village. Once they entered the village, they split in each one to go and visit 10 families. Very simple huts and basic uh, accommodation. They would give them a Bible lesson. They would take with them a picture of Christ, hang it in the living room. Probably the whole house was one or two, roo one or two rooms. They would see what the problems were in the household. There was a regional office somewhere where the servants would report back to the regional office what are the main issues that they were facing in this village so that they could find solutions to it. Find one or two people in the village that can read and write to teach the rest. Leave with the family. One of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, in the evening gather the whole village together. The people would discuss the different lessons they learned throughout the day. There would be a youth meeting. There would be a buzz of activity taking place in the village and then encouraging the priests from the city to take the holy altar board, come into the village, pray liturgies for the people, revive the life of the villages. So not only he cared for people in the city, but even in these remote villages of Egypt, everywhere he tried to care for these people. A great vision. But the problem he would have met is actually finding one or two people that could read and write, that could teach the rest of the village. But at least it gives you an idea of the broad way that Habib Gerges was thinking an amazing, amazing educator. When you go deep into his life and see all of the resistance and the suffering and what he was willing to do to reach every single Copt is really amazing. He was truly a tireless advocate for religious education for children and youth, aspired to teach children fundamental truths of their faith, instruct them in history, doctrines, and rites of the church and lives of its saints. He trained them to sanctify Sunday, that Sunday is a holy day because people will not 
going to church, they were not partaking of Holy Communion and how to lead the Christian life and prepare them also to be useful members of their church and nation. He always spoke about the church and the nation in one voice, right? So that they be active in the community that they were living in. He also founded the Coptic Youth League, which is now our modern youth ministry or bishopric of youth that is led by his Grace Bishop Musa. May God give him uh, good health and long life. But youth ministry began back in 1918 with Habib Gerbis. He sought to confirm youth in their faith, consolidate their spirit of unity and general fraternity, engage them in spiritual, cultural, spiritual, social, and sporting activities, to train youth to embrace virtue and combat vice, carrying out charitable and social projects to benefit church and community, and encourage youth to confront the dangers that targeted the unity of the church. So he spoke to the young people about all of these problems that the church was facing and how they have an important role to maintain the unity of the church, both internally and also from external pressures. He also petitioned for the introduction of Christian education in state-run schools because only Islamic religion was being taught. And so eventually the government agreed to take on the curriculum that he wrote and implemented it into state-run schools. And he found the Christian teachers in these schools and trained them to teach this curriculum. So this was in order to counter the widespread influence of Western missionaries, whether Catholic or Protestant, and wanted the young to be empowered by the lives of the saints to emulate their actions and virtues. And these three types of popular education that I spoke about, the liturgy, because when you come into a Coptic church or an Orthodox church, it's a sensory experience. Right? You hear the music, you hear the hymns, you see the priest, you see the priest with the uh, censer, sensing, raising the prayers of the saints. Um, you see the icons. So much education takes place, a type of popular education through the liturgy. And he taught this to the kids. And we spoke about the spiritual songs where he taught the doctrine and also the religious pictures. This is a sample, an original, of the re uh, religious pictures that he used to publish. And so in one of his reports in the 1940s, for an, he used to write an annual report about what was happening in Sunday school in the whole church this year. Nine-month report. I was astounded when I saw this. He writes a budget on what, how much money was spent and what books were, were published, what new branches of Sunday school were established and where. And then he writes how many of these religious pictures were published in a nine-month period, right? And the number of Sunday school students at the time would have been around 50,000 or so. 
This is in the mid-1940s. The population of Copts was about one million Copts in Egypt at that time. How many religious pictures did you think he published during this nine-month period with these numbers? 46,000 students, one million Copts total, nine-month period. How many religious pictures do you think he would need to publish? Hmm? Okay, around a million. He published 3.25 million religious pictures he printed. All right? It cost him 715 Egyptian pounds. That was a huge amount of money back then. Yeah? He distributed, I think, over 2 million of these religious pictures, and the rest he kept in storage for when they were needed, and he distributed them throughout Egypt, Sudan, and even to Ethiopia. Why this huge amount? Because this was a type of popular education where the picture, and for those that could read, then they would keep this and they would remember the lessons that they are learning every week. We spoke about this already, the visitation to the villages. That's what the cover of the booklet looks like, Iftikad al-Qarya. And then he gives attention even to female education. And this is a picture in Zazi of Sunday school with Habib Gerges with some of the female students in the class, one of the classes then. But this is what he says about education of females. He says, as, it's not on the screen. As for the ministry to girls, after the age of 10, they are to be cared for by women who would conduct their meetings at different times to the meetings for boys. The male Sunday school teachers and the members of the Coptic Youth League are not to interfere in or oversee the ministry to girls. Women are to set the suitable activities from the Coptic Youth or apart from the Coptic Youth League. And the higher committee is to set up a special organization to supervise and direct the ministry of young females. So you can see again, at that time, there was not much interest in female education in general in Egypt, but he was ahead of his time without any doubt and did not neglect any faction of the Coptic community, whether those that were illiterate or poor or females or families. He cared to find education for everyone in the suitable way. And then he writes about the progress of the Sunday school curriculum. He says this, Coptic Sunday schools in their modern revival have undergone many stages to achieve what they desire for the advancement of their curricula and methods of teaching the children of the church, while entreating from the heart that the Lord of the church would establish them as a strong and righteous generation and return the church to its former glory. This was always, always repeating this. How to return the church to its former glory. 
In the first stages of the establishment of Coptic Sunday schools from 1918 onward, there was just one general curriculum for all students, which was based on the gospel reading of the liturgy. Then it progressed by using the curriculum that was developed by the theological college for primary and secondary schools. So really he used the seminary as a laboratory to test his ideas and got his students to assist him to write this curriculum and to see what would work and what would not. So now they begin developing the curriculum further. Around 1935, it was decided that separate curricula for Sunday schools for each age group would be prepared. These curricula, however, were not printed or prepared for publication until 1939, so it took him a couple of years. And from that time, Sunday schools attempted to improve their curricula. These curricula continued to develop and were trialed in years to follow. Particular Sunday schools in the cities and the provinces began to try systems specific to them. Right? So what he was doing here, so here's the curriculum for each age group. The teachers tried this, tested in the cities, they tested in the provinces, they tested in the villages, see what adaptations that they needed to make that would suit the specific needs of that community. So not necessary to have one uniform curricula for the whole church. You could have different things, obviously the general ideas and doctrines of the church have to be abided by, but there could be specific needs, say here in New Jersey, it could be different, say to Los Angeles or Canada, etc. So they would tweak the curriculum to the needs of the local community. So imagine back then, that's how he was thinking. Yes. This is the formal date, right, when the higher committee of Sunday schools was formed. But he began writing curricula from the end of the um, uh, 19th century, uh, 1897, 1898, when he started with that simple catechism, gathering kids together and began educating them. But it was not in a formal way until the Central Committee was established in 1918, but you still had about 20 years before that when education of children was taking place or the, the movement had begun. Thank you. It's always a common phrase that Sunday school was taken from the Protestant church. Yep. Is that where heavy riggers like, learned it from? Or ever had that? Without a doubt, because they were advanced in this. They already had curricula there, but he baptized it and made it orthodox. But he got the concept from them. They had in Egypt what was called Sabbath schools, right? So they didn't call it Sunday schools. They called it Sabbath schools. And he got some, the idea of having education for children from them, 
from the Sabbath school system, but he preferred to have this on Sunday, but also because Friday was a public holiday, so they had classes on Friday as well. But he made sure that whatever was being taught was orthodox. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. At the time, there was separation usually in the education between uh, boys and girls. And even here, you know, sometimes in high school retreats, you have separation to have more concentration for the boys on their own, the girls on their own. So this was probably the mindset back then. Yeah, and there was specific needs for the girls that were required then, and that's why they decided to do that. But it was also to give a great emphasis for the education of women that was lacking in general in Egypt at the time. Any other questions? Let us continue. Yes? Sorry? I mean, he had lots of disciples, right? So you had Pope Shenouda III of blessed memory, for example. He was one of the disciples in the 1940s of Habib Gerges. He studied uh, at the seminary and completed his uh, seminary qualification apart from his university uh, work and, uh, and degrees. And also, he was appointed by Habib Kyrgyz to teach at the seminary. I actually have the letter of appointment in Habib Kyrgyz's handwriting, appointing Nazir Gayet, Pope Shenouda III, to teach um, Bishop uh, Gregorius, who was the bishop for uh, uh, the in, uh, Higher Institute of Coptic uh, Studies. He was also very close to Habib Gerges, and so there was many uh, great leaders of the church that continued uh, the work of Habib Gerges, and the seminary certainly continued, and the Sunday school movement flourishes all throughout the church till today. So even though he didn't achieve all he wanted, right, but uh, his legacy continues on, but I feel that there is still so much more that the church needs to learn from what he uh, called for. For example, one of his main battle cries is that no man should be ordained to the priesthood without completing a theological qualification at the seminary. Till today, we have not learned that lesson. Yes, we have lots of great clergy now that are you know, completing degrees and, and qualifications, but we're probably one of the few churches in the whole world that will ordain a priest without completing a seminary degree. I think that's to our detriment. It's changing slowly, but we still have a lot of work to do with respect to theological education in the Coptic Orthodox Church, but obviously, you know, we continue to strive ahead, and now we have many great fathers that 
you know, are well educated in theology that preach very well in all of our churches. And so things have changed because back then there was only one priest, one priest in all of Egypt that was an eloquent preacher. Do you know his name? No. Father Philithaus Ibrahim Baghdadi. 1837 till 19 or something. And he would go from church to church throughout Cairo, Alexandria, preaching and teaching. The churches would be overflowing with people that people would be standing around the windows outside listening to him because they were thirsty to hear the word of God and couldn't find anyone to teach them. Sometimes his sermons went on for three hours and people were not bored because they were hungry to hear the word of God. They couldn't find a preacher. He went all the way to Aswan doing spiritual revivals. Amazing history. We need to know this history so we don't fall back into the same mistakes again. Don't think that we can't go back to a period of darkness. We can if we're not careful, right? We have to learn the lessons from history. History is not just something that happened in the past. It's in our present. We have to live it every day. So after seeing the dismal state that his people had reached, he presented a lecture. We said this already. So he concentrated his vision for education in several arenas, educating those who would teach education of children and youth through Sunday school, education of young men in theological college to serve, education of women, education for the masses through preaching in the churches, adult education for tradespeople and workmen, education for parents through family scriptural lessons. So the establishment and success of the Sunday School movement, which flourishes even today in the Coptic Orthodox Church, are attributable largely to the work of Habib Gerges. As a student, he realized that children were the key to the revival of the church. The community was mired in illiteracy, ignorance, and apathy. And he attacked the problem head on using education as the weapon and to compete with Sabbath schools started by the Western missions, he emulated them but baptized everything he did to make sure it was orthodox. We already spoke about this. And we spoke about the six volumes. This is one of the uh, books, the Rasat al-Tarbawiyya, educational uh, volumes, studies for teachers of Coptic Orthodox Sunday schools. So the volumes address teachers of children from infancy to 13 years of age. They describe how lessons should be prepared on a solid pedagogical and psychological foundation. And books tell us much about Habib Gerges' educational philosophy and pedagogical views. 
He advocates a holistic view of child development. And you can see this by these words that he says here. I'll read from my book. Very interesting stuff. Remember that when he started, he started with memorization and rote le learning and Q&A. Look now how his thought begins to develop. Teaching is neither the dictation of advice nor of orders, nor of instruction. Rather, it is the participation between the teacher and the child in a common spirit for knowledge. So now things are changing, right? Now the teacher is there as a facilitator of learning. Exactly what happens in schools today, right? Is guiding the students to find and discover everything on their own. Look what he says next. Therefore, it is the teacher's duty not to dictate information, not to dictate information, or to hand out absolute orders to these children in their care, but they should provide them with the opportunity to discover everything on their own and offer sufficient assistance to enable them to make these discoveries. Among the aims of this important theory, yeah, he calls it theory because he got it from Friedrich Froebel, the German philosopher education. Among the aims of this important theory of education are, one, to ensure that the child lives a virtuous life from an early age and to go beyond stating mere facts about how to live it thereafter. Two, to ensure that activity gives rise to vigor. Three, to combine research with pleasure and happiness. Pleasure and happiness? Who was talking about education as something pleasurable and something that brings joy? In my research, we had to read the book called Happiness in Education. Habib Gerges was doing this with his kids back then, how that research should bring pleasure and happiness, and to reap and harvest the results to deepen the effects of research on life. And four, to ensure that the pleasure and happiness of the children ignite their inner desire for knowledge rather than mere facts provided for memorization. So you see the complete shift and how his thoughts develop. So you should be doing the same in your classrooms as well. How to inspire your children to learn and to discover many things on their own and you are there as a facilitator in the classroom. We spoke about this. And then, after he has achieved many of these things, he speaks about now how they are no longer needing to write about the importance of Sunday schools to the church, because at first, many of the priests were resisting the establishment of Sunday school branches in their churches. But what he did was gave them the responsibility for it 
and then they began to accept it. So he says this, these days we are no longer in need to write about the importance of Sunday school to the church. Its practical effects in the lives of the children and the teachers have become manifest. Its spirit and principles have nourished homes immensely. Fathers and mothers have felt its value in the lives of their children. Parents have loved it, for it also, for it has also influenced their lives in an indirect way. Children have imparted the message of life to their parents. The time in which we exerted every effort to convince our fathers, the bishops and priests, of the importance of Sunday schools has passed. Now not only do we see them encouraging it, but requesting its expansion in all the cities and villages in their diocese. Every priest desires to have a Sunday school in his parish. Sunday schools did not reach this stage except after the clergyman trusted in it when it proved itself to be one of the members of the church. It is in fact among the most important members. Being in the bosom of the church allows it to develop and thrive and from its milk one can drink and learn. One may grasp its laws and traditions and remain firm. So you can see very beautiful language that he uses. And you can see by the end of his life, 650 branches of Sunday schools are established. 2,100 classes across all of Egypt and Sudan and Wahat. 43,000 children being educated by two and a half thousand Sunday school teachers and assistants. So, quite amazing achievement indeed. I already spoke about my fascinating journey into the patriarchal archives, and this is what one of the archival boxes looks like, and you can see they're all numbered. These are some of the handwritten lessons that, uh, uh, that he initially started to write. This was the, the law that he wrote, Al-Kanun Al-Asasi Limadaris Al-Ahad Al-Qibtiya Al-Orthodoxiya Ujama'at Shabab Al-Qibti in 1949, near the end of his life. The Sunday School and Coptic Youth League Law, very interesting to, to read. But he was also a magnificent administrator. I call him, really, he was the administrator par excellence of his time in the Coptic Church. He formed all of these forms. Here are some of them. So where he would collect all this information from every branch of Sunday School from the Sunday school teachers, from the superintendent of Sunday schools, and also about each of the children. Did they come to Sunday school? What was the lesson? Did they go to confession if they were at that age? Did they have Holy Communion? The teachers themselves, there was different lessons. It was not just one, one meeting of the teachers per week. There was a Bible study, there was a general meeting, several, and they would write these reports, 
and they would collect all this information that he would then formulate into an annual report for Sunday school activity for the whole Coptic Orthodox Church that was printed and presented to the Patriarch, to the Synod, and to the whole church, anyone that was interested. But there's a lot of details there. I, will, I won't go into that. These were some of the printed Sunday school lessons. Here is a report that he wrote on Sunday schools in 1948. For example, I find this document during the end of the World War, um, or sorry, during the, uh, what was this, 1918, 1919, the, the Under Secretary of Education of the state sends out a letter saying there's a shortage of paper, um, and so they combine some of the exams together in the secondary schools. These are some more of the lessons. Here, for example, on the right, the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan, uh, written in Coptic and Arabic, and then a summary and a verse on the back. Here are some of his personal items. He was, he was gifted this beautiful ivory pen with his name engraved in it, Habib Beg Gerges, that you see in the bottom photo. I was actually able to borrow from the museum in Egypt that original pen, and I've been able to replicate it exactly, and we've been on our website being able to if people that are interested to purchase it as a museum piece that they could place in their home or in their living room. Uh, and it actually works as a dip pen. So if you had the ink pad, uh, you could dip it in and you could write with it, but it's more of a, a museum piece. But it's a very beautiful, as you can see there, obviously the original was ivory. And his ink pad there at the top and so on, some of the uh, prizes or gifts that were given to him in some of his trips to Ethiopia on the right, and another ivory uh, envelope opener on the left. Some more of the uh, gifts that were presented to him when he uh, went with the Patriarch to Ethiopia. And also many postcards that he received from some of the friends or lecturers that were teaching at the seminary. For example, these ones are from a man called Mark Baruch, who was the English teacher at the seminary. So he actually you know, um, employed an English teacher. He employed a Jewish uh, rabbi to teach Hebrew. He also uh, employed Muslim sheikhs to teach uh, Arabic language as well to the students. But here you see, for example, 1937, Mark Baruch writes to him in that bottom postcard, kind thoughts from the snow, from the ice. So he was skiing somewhere in Europe and he remembers Habib Gerges, Habib Bey Gerges, headmaster, clerical school, Mahmasha, Cairo, Egypt, and send him this night's uh, postcard. And then the one at the top, also from the same year, again, Dear Habib Bey, 
I'm uh, for a few days uh, in England, and then on the 7th of September, I'm taking the boat to Marsella, to Alexandria. I am looking forward to, I think, seeing you again, or something like this kind, kind thoughts. So I have some of these, not the original postcards, but copies uh, of them. So someone may ask, what can we learn? This is obviously something very brief, what I've given to you. If you are, want to know more information, you could read more in, in the book. But what can we learn from him? We can learn resilience. He didn't give up easily. Sometimes in our ministry, very easy when a problem happens or we face an issue, maybe with another Sunday school teacher or a problem happens in the class, very easy to give up and say, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. But Habib Gerges never gave up easily. He was a tenacious character. And he was also strong, even in the times of darkness, and we need to learn from this. Also, his love for the church and its hierarchy and wanting to see the glory of the church to return. His love for the children that he served. If you don't love these children that you serve, you'll find it very difficult to, to take on such a ministry. His amazing passion for his work. Sometimes he would work, wake up in the middle of the night and he would remember you know, an important idea, and he would write it on the wall, wall near his bed so he wouldn't forget it the next day. His love of reading and study. In uh, his history book on the seminary, he says that he went into the patriarchal library and read everything in there, not leaving one page unturned. And for four years, he taught himself, and that's why they allowed him to teach at the seminary in the final year, when for the first four years there was no teacher of theology. And also the importance of having a proper administration system for Sunday school. Especially here, I'm hearing you have 250 Sunday school teachers. This is a, a huge amount and a, a big ministry that you have for religious education here. And for that to run properly, we need to have proper administration, not just for a parish, but on a diocesan level, on, on the church level. He was also someone that thought outside the box all the time. He was an innovator, thought how he could do things better. And you can see that in how he developed the curriculum of Sunday schools throughout his career. And also, he was a righteous man and just, and he didn't bear grudges because sometimes someone of the Sunday school teachers wrote articles very aggressive against him. And there was two of these teachers together, working together. The other one came to Habib Gerges asking for a raise in his salary. What did Habib Gerges do? Did he just give that one the raise? No, he gave both of them, even the one that was attacking him. And the one that was attacking them then came back and was embarrassed of his action and apologized for what he did. One of the priests wrote a response to that servant who was writing this vicious attack on Habib Gerges, and he came to bring the response to publish it. 
and showed it to Habib Gerges and was about to publish. What did Habib Gerges do with the response? He tore it up and said to him, no, we don't do stuff like this. So he was never a person who bore grudges against others. He was an eloquent preacher, an eloquent speaker with a sonorous voice and had a great passion for preaching. Even when the Maglis and Milli cut off the funds, he was so disappointed. He was sending over 100 of his students to preach in the churches. And Maglis and Milli was paying for their transport costs to go to all the different churches. And all of a sudden, they cut the funds. And he wrote a very strong letter and said, how can you be responsible? How can you bear this responsibility of cutting off the word of God from these thousands of parishioners that now have no way of being educated in their faith when they have no preachers because these people don't have the money to, to pay for this transportation. Many difficult situations. And also a person who was a great reformer. But I'm going to end before our next break with what he says near the end of his life when a monk priest attacks him viciously and calls him a thief and calls him all this nasty stuff. His name was Father Hiziel Baramosi, this monk. And he writes a couple of letters to the Maglis and Melli saying all these donations that Habib Gerges is collecting, what's he doing with it? Why is he teaching the students Hebrew and Greek, useless language, obviously not understanding that they are critical to understanding the Old and New Testament? And in my opinion, he was jealous of Habib Gerges. Why? The Pope had given him the, the, the responsibility of being the Canaisi in the Clericaia, meaning looking after the rituals of the church in the seminary and building a baptistry. And he was considering himself as a monk priest that he was of a higher rank than an archdeacon. How can he then be the dean and I am more worthy than him? I think there was a huge jealousy. That's my personal opinion. So Habib Gerges writes back in response to the Maglis and Melli after this attack, listen to these words from Habib Gerges's letter. And this I found in the archives. Despite efforts that sapped my health and crushed my strength, I did not surrender for one day to anyone who resisted or envied me. This is a great grace that I do not deserve, as one cannot be envious or resistant except the one who does not have grace. Stones are thrown only at the trees that are filled with fruits, and birds peck only at ripe fruits. I thank God Almighty that through his grace, Despair never penetrated my soul for even one day. But in fact, I constantly smile at the resistances. I have forgiven 
and will continue to forgive from the depth of my heart everyone who desires to be my enemy in vain. Knowing that it is inevitable that obstacles will come along the path of those who desire to serve God and people. It is inevitable that there is no honey without the bee sting. And he who abandons positive work for the sake of the murmurings of people resembles the horse that bolts when it sees its own shadow. Gold does not lose its value if it is rejected by animals, and the sun is not blemished if you cannot see it one day. It is imperative that we do not fail in doing good, for we shall reap the harvest in due time if we do not weary. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These are the words of Habib Gerges. And I'll end with this. One of Habib Gerges' disciples, Murad Wahba, sums up Gerges' life as follows. Was he successful in his mission or did he fail? This is what Murad Wahba says. The great teacher has failed in his reform, but he failed where shortcoming and failure are considered an honor. It was the failure of a martyr. It was the failure of a martyr. This is what Murad Wahba concludes. So the Copts take great pride, take great historical pride in their martyrs. Even their failures are a source of strength and courage. Habib Gerges had a clear goal and vision to make the Coptic Orthodox Seminary rise to the highest international standards of the day. But one can feel his heartache and his pain and his struggles that he had not achieved his goal despite doing everything within his power to succeed. But unfortunately, there is a sense of sadness in his expressions of hope that the next generation would continue the effort and bring his work to fruition. And when he established some, the evening classes at the seminary for university students and graduates in 1945, the Maglis and Melli shut it down a, a, a little while later. This caused him to be paralyzed and bedridden for the last few years of his life. How do I know this? A lady called Nadia Flefel, who passed away last year, who lived in the same apartment block as Habib Gerges, and her father, Nagib Flefel, was serving with Habib Gerges for a long time, and where I was able to get some of these personal artifacts of Habib Gerges, she told me this story that at the end of his life, when all these resistances were happening against him, it had a detrimental effect uh, on his health because he was so passionate and loved what he was doing so much for the church. So, 
sorry to end on that sad note, but uh, so at the beginning I asked the question, <laughs> what do you know about Habib Gerges? And I got one response. He was the one who established the Sunday school movement. So do you think you know him a little bit better now? He's a fascinating figure, really. I, every time I speak about him, I get emotional and I get very inspired. Um, he has a, a deep impact on my life. It's a good question, and uh, I think we don't spend enough time talking about our theology, our doctrine, and our history, and patristics, patristic teachings of the early fathers. I think there needs to be more emphasis about these issues in our curriculum and you know, in our conferences, sometimes we, sorry to say, we talk about a lot of fluffy stuff and we don't get into the nitty gritty of what we, who we are as Coptic Orthodox Christians and what do we believe in. And that's why sometimes we ask youth in a meeting or in a conference basic questions of faith and they don't know how to respond. I think that's very dangerous because they, our faith is something that needs to be handed down from generation to generation. And if we are not building up strong youth, how are they going to teach this to their children? I think there's lots of good work happening with respect to uh, curriculum. So I know uh, in the South, uh, Metropolitan Yusuf, uh, on his website, is doing a lot of good work with curriculum. Bishop Corollos has a whole department on Christian education in Los Angeles, and they have a website, and they have developed a lot of uh, resources and material, and the new curriculum, which um, is really excellent what they're doing there. Also something new this year in December, we're going to start having a regular conference for religious educators for North America. So some of the bishops, some of the clergy, and we're going to start the first conference will be on 
elementary level, and so the superintendents of elementary in each of the dioceses, in each of the regions, will be invited. We'll have a survey first to see what are the needs as we form what the conference will look like, and so you'll hear, and there'll be a website, so you will uh, be informed of this in the coming months, and I hope some of you may be able to attend, and we see what are some of the challenges, what are some of the needs, what we can do more with curricula, and we work together as North America and see what, what can happen. So I think this will also be uh, uh, something positive, and uh, I will be working on this in the coming months. Yeah, that's right, because you know, as I said, there were six volumes that he wrote for the teachers themselves, how to teach each of the age levels. I don't know if we have any resources like this currently, so because many of the Sunday school teachers, maybe they, they're not teachers by profession, so how to equip them and how to give them some resources to be able to teach better and to get the message uh, through to the, to the children in a much better way. So these may be some of the things we'll discuss. Other questions? We have something called medicine, continuing medical education. Yes. And if you don't do it, you may not have it. Of course. We're going to have a conference. A conference. There will be a conference. I don't know if it will be annual or biannual, but it will be important to begin engaging in what are the challenges, what are the needs, and we begin developing the necessary resources for this. So. Yes, yes. Sure, that, that all these ideas will be collected through a survey and then we'll begin developing to see what we can do in each of these conferences and what will happen after as well. Yes, the, the book, you mean, this book? Or there's an Arabic version, is that what you're looking for? Uh, yes, the, I, I have a couple of them, there's six, six booklets. I only have a couple of them, not all of them. But they're not in English, they're in Arabic. Yeah. Yes, but remember that this was you know, something written um, uh, 75 years ago or so. And so obviously it's something that c 
kind of, it's ideas, but obviously, see how he was thinking at the time, but obviously if we were to do something similar today, it would be much more developed. Any other questions? Yes? Um, I would have to go back to see what he wrote in those six volumes to the teachers. And if he does mention something like this, I wouldn't be surprised if he, if he that I'm sure that he probably wrote something about this, but I'd need to go back to some of those volumes. I don't have all of them and see if he mentioned something like that. No, he was not rich. He was getting a salary from memory 40 Egyptian pounds a month, and all of his money he was spending on his work. Um, the average salary for the other teachers at the seminary was about 20 Egyptian pounds. Yeah. There was one British scholar from Oxford that he employed, I think he was getting 60 Egyptian pounds a month. Yeah. A month. Yeah. Other questions? Well, I hope you found this of some benefit, and I hope that the legacy of Habib Gerges continues and you find it inspirational in your own ministry and in your own Sunday school uh, work or in whatever capacity that you serve in the church. And he certainly is a great inspiration uh, in my life. Um, I, I will start working this year on a second volume because I have so much material on Habib Gerges, maybe, maybe more about his thought and some of uh, his writing not sure how long it will take, but uh, um, hopefully uh, we'll begin working on this. So I have three book projects this year. We'll see how, uh, how we go.